Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 304. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We've got a cracking show lined up today. I'll tell you what's coming in. First up is our fact article by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Then we are going to play two short stories by our writer this week. The first one is Outbound from Putin Bear by M. Bernardo. Then there's been a novel that's just come out, a cyberpunk novel no less, that's making some great waves in the community. And I've got an interview with that writer, Kay Cerise Wright. So I'm hoping good things will come in this novel. Then another story by M. Bernardo, Water Finds Its Level. There you go. What a cracking show lined up, man. It can't help here. Can't get better than that. So no time like the present. We'll jump straight in with Amy H. Sturgis. Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I would like to talk about, or begin talking about, a very important anniversary that is occurring now, that is the autumn of 2013. It's important in the history of, well, modernity, actually. And I think it warrants our attention. Now, when I explain what I'm going to talk about, you're going to say, oh, that's fine and well, Sturgis, but how does this relate to science fiction? So I want to say up front, trust me, it does. We are going to come back around to the science fiction question, and it is central to what I want to talk about. But first, I have to provide some context and set up the whole subject. So please do. Bear with me here. Wait for it, because it is coming. All right, so the anniversary I'm talking about is the anniversary of a series of events that struck horror into the hearts of people really around the world, and that forever changed, well, a lot of things, from the way police handled investigations to the way journalists covered stories. 
and it spawned a variety of political and social reforms. It's one of the great unsolved mysteries of the modern age. I'm talking about the Autumn of Terror, the multiple murders and mutilations performed by the killer known as Jack the Ripper in the East End of London. Now, just to give you the whirlwind tour, Jack the Ripper is credited with five so-called canonical victims, all of whom were killed in 1888, that is, 125 years ago, as of the autumn of 2013. Those victims who were brutally killed and mutilated included Marianne or Polly Nichols, who died on August the 31st, Annie Chapman, who was killed on the 8th of September, the so-called double event of the deaths of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes on the 30th of September, and Mary Jane Kelly, who died on the 9th of November. Now, even something so simple as listing the victims is a very difficult thing to do in the case of Jack the Ripper. One of the names I just listed, that is Elizabeth Stride, may or may not have been a Ripper victim. The traditional wisdom is that the Ripper was interrupted in his grisly deeds, and that's why Stride's body was the least mutilated of all, and also why the Ripper went on to kill Catherine Eddowes later that same morning. But there is some evidence to suggest that Stride was in fact a victim of domestic violence and that it was her partner or former partner who was responsible for the killing. And that is why, in fact, the method of operation is different in her case. For that matter, there are murders both before and after these so-called canonical five murders that are probably or at least possibly attributable to Jack the Ripper. The most obvious of these is the Martha Tabram murder on the 7th of August, just earlier in the month before Polly Nichols was killed. Um, she was stabbed 39 times and a number of contemporary scholars, and for that matter, researchers and investigators of the day uh, believe that she is in fact a Ripper victim as well. So we can't even point to who exactly the victims of Jack the Ripper were, and we certainly can't name who Jack the Ripper was. Generations of scholars and researchers and investigators, people who are professionals, people who are amateurs, have dedicated themselves to the study of this case. You would think, with so much evidence that has been brought to light, that the number of potential suspects would be whittled down to, uh, to a few. But in fact, in the case of Jack the Ripper, the pool of potential suspects has only grown over the years. I suppose I'm a bit unusual among those who are interested in the case, because I don't have sort of a pet suspect that I think is probably Jack. I think there's a good handful or two of suspects that are much more compelling than the rest, but I also think it's incredibly likely that if history with a big H were to 
speak its mind and tell us the truth, you know, voice booming from the clouds, the name that it might give us as the real Jack the Ripper is someone we've never heard of, because I think it's very possible that it was someone who lived in the Whitechapel or Spitalfields area in the East End of London, and besides his gory crimes, never really came to the attention of the wider world. Now, there are lots of theories as to why Jack killed, and there are lots of theories as to why he stopped. And that's perhaps the more interesting question, as that might give us an answer that could help figure out who Jack the Ripper really was. Of the current slate of suspects, the answers range from because he committed suicide to because he was incarcerated or institutionalized to because he fled the country and went on to ply his grisly trade elsewhere. Jack the Ripper has also been connected with other serial killings, both in England and abroad. For example, the Thames Torso murders in London, the Servant Annihilator murders in Austin, Texas in the United States, and H.H. Holmes, the serial killer responsible for many, many deaths at the time of the Chicago World's Fair, among others. Now, when I admit to people that I have been fascinated by and followed the Ripper case and its ongoing investigations for years, and I continue to find it a fascinating study, sometimes my friends and colleagues look a bit askance at me because I'm not known for an interest in serial killers in particular, or true crime in general. But the fact is that the Ripper murders represent a kind of perfect storm for a historian, because so many factors come together in this tale. There is, of course, the mystery of who Jack is, why he performed the terrible acts that he did, how he got away, what happened to him. But there's so much more. There's the East End of London itself, known at the time as the cesspool of Satan. Its dire conditions reflected the realities of rapid industrialization and rapid urbanization. The population of London had grown exponentially in just a few years. There's also the large migrations of immigrants into the city, many fleeing violent pogroms in Russia and Eastern Europe, and indeed anti-immigrant xenophobic sentiments, as well as particularly anti-Semitism, had significant parts to play in the Ripper story. The East End also underscored one of the most disturbing of the paradoxes of the Victorian era, Contrasting the cult of femininity, the uh, supposed moral superiority and modesty of the so-called weaker sex with conditions and laws and, let's face it, demand that led literally thousands of women to resort to prostitution in order to survive. But there were other trends as well. The face of publishing and journalism in London, in England, and across the world was changing due to developments in literacy, in communication, and in the very technology of printing. This was the rise of sensationalism in journalism. 
And in fact, the first newspaper to sell a million copies was an edition with Jack the Ripper as a headline. This caused its own problems and dilemmas from the fact that there were reporters following up behind Scotland Yard as the police tried to investigate the murders, uh, to the fact that one of the most famous of the so-called Ripper letters, one that if you watch any of the popular documentaries on the Ripper, is often analyzed for its handwriting, is now considered by many scholars and investigators to be the product not of the murderer, but of a journalist who was using the publication of this letter to spike sales in the paper itself. And then there is the almost heart-wrenching issue of science and timing. If the murders had occurred just a handful of years later, I don't mean a decade, I don't mean half a century, I mean just a few years later, the burgeoning field of forensic science would have created a very different kind of investigation. Use of fingerprints and blood typing on a widespread scale was just around the corner. And so the question of what if is a stirring and compelling one. Almost immediately, those who lived through the Autumn of Terror turned to fiction in order to deal with the Jack the Ripper story. For example, Guy Logan was an active London journalist during the latter part of the hunt for the Whitechapel murderer, and he established contacts with the Scotland Yard detectives who were leading the investigation of the case. He wrote a novel in 1905 called The True History of Jack the Ripper, and I'm pleased to say that novel, which had been lost for quite some time, has been republished as of this autumn. Marie Bellick Lowndes, who lived through the mass hysteria of the time, published The Lodger in 1913. That has been adapted half a dozen times, and in fact, Alfred Hitchcock liked it so much that he adapted it twice, once for radio and once for film. The Lodger is, by the way, a fantastic work of psychological horror. It's the story of two very sympathetic, decent, hardworking individuals, a husband and wife, who have tried to make a go of having a boarding house, and it didn't work, and they're facing economic ruin. They're one step away from just destitution. They've sold everything they can, and they're holding on by their fingertips. And then appears the answer to all of their prayers. A man who wants to rent their rooms, who simply wants to be left alone, and although he's eccentric and he keeps to himself, he can pay, and in fact he pays in advance. And he is the single factor that allows them to keep their home and stay financially solvent. Over time, each of these people, both the man and the woman, separately come to the conclusion that their lodger is more than likely the one who is perpetrating the terrible murders in London. And the story is this wonderful study of how they make, each individually on their own, moral compromises with the idea, because he doesn't seem to be a threat to them, because he continues to pay, because they'll be out on the street if he leaves, 
How long can they shelter a man they believe to be a monster? How culpable are they for the horrors that he apparently perpetrates? It's an effective slow burn of a novel, and I highly recommend it. Okay, Sturgis, you said. We've put up with all of this. We've listened to all of your backstory and your context setting. Where is our science fiction? Well, I'm glad you asked. No genre does what if. No genre tackles unsolved mysteries quite like science fiction. And in fact, there is a long and broad tradition of science fiction wrestling with the Jack the Ripper mystery. As you probably have figured out, this is going to be a multi-part segment as I discuss the various ways in which science fiction has dealt with Saucy Jack. But I'll leave you with a bit of a preview. Two of the best-known, most talked-about, and most anthologized stories about Jack the Ripper, of any genre, appeared in the path-breaking 1967 collection edited by Harlan Ellison, known as Dangerous Visions. This is the book that helped define the new wave of science fiction. It earned a Hugo and Nebula for Fritz Leiber, a Hugo nomination for Philip K. Dick, a Hugo award for Philip Jose Farmer, and a nebula for Samuel R. Delaney, all for their contributions to the volume. And it earned a special citation at the World Science Fiction Convention for Harlan Ellison as editor. As Al Sarantonio famously said, Dangerous Visions almost single-handedly changed the way readers thought about science fiction. The first story in Dangerous Visions, important to our current study of science fiction and Jack the Ripper, is Robert Bloch's A Toy for Juliet. Robert Bloch, if you'll recall, was the student of H.P. Lovecraft, who personally mentored him. He was perhaps best known for being the author of Psycho. And you may recall that he penned a little episode for the original series of Star Trek entitled A Wolf in the Fold. That episode suggested that Jack the Ripper was a spirit who roamed the universe, essentially bumming rides from one planet to the next, in host bodies, took over different individuals, and used them to act out his violent fantasies. So, in the case of A Wolf in the Fold, Scotty, who is on shore leave, keeps coming to, out of essentially fugue states, to find women dead next to him. He has no memory how they got that way. And it turns out that he has been possessed by that creature who feeds on fear and terror and hatred known as Jack the Ripper. Fortunately, by the end of the episode, Scotty is cleared and he gets back to his dilithium crystals and scotch. Block wrote several works about Jack the Ripper. They are now available in one volume called Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper. But the story that we want to talk about now is a toy for Juliet. He took the name Juliet from the Marquis de Sade's Juliet. And the story takes place in a dystopian future. Jack the Ripper is brought from 1888 London to this future by a sadistic young woman and her mysterious grandfather. 
There she tries to seduce Jack. Very suggestively, Jack finds under this bored and somewhat unstable young woman's pillow a knife waiting for him. What happens next? Well, Block leaves that up to the reader to decide. And one reader, who had his own theory to share, was Harlan Ellison himself. And that, my friends, is where we will begin next time in my Looking Back on Genre History segment. We're going to talk about how Harlan Ellison solved the riddle of A Toy for Juliet. And then we'll go on to take a survey of the various ways in which science fiction has wrestled with Jack the Ripper. I hope you will join me for that. I look forward to it as we together look back into genre history. Thank you. There you go, Amy. Thank you very much. And actually, Amy is narrating one of the stories by M. Bernardo, so do listen out for that. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, I said I'd read those stories, what Amy's up being on about there, the, the, the Block one and the Harlan Ellison one. And you've got to read them, man. Do you know what I mean? Just go out there, get, get that Dangerous Visions book and get them stories read. Fantastic. So next up is Outbound from Putin Bay by M. Bernardo. I'll give you a little heads up for M. Bernardo is the writer of over 40 published short stories that appeared in Asimov's Science Fiction, Lightspeed, Beneath Seas the Skies, Shimmer and more. He is also the editor of Machine of Death series of anthologies, the second volume of which, This Is How You Die, was published by Grand Central Publishing in July 2013. He lives in Cleveland, Ohio. But people anywhere, everywhere can find him online at mbernardo.com. I put a little link on there so you can pop over there to mbernardo's site. This story is narrated by Summer Brooks. Now, Summer Brooks last narrated on Starships over nearly 300 episodes ago. Wow, man. She is an avid reader, writer of science fiction, fantasy and thrillers with a handful of publishing and voiceover credits to her name. She spent many years as a Unix and... SAS admin and competing in amateur full contract kickboxing tournaments before moving into entertainment media production and WordPress website designs. These days, Summer enjoys putting her sci-fi media geek skills to good use as an executive producer for Slice of Sci-Fi and using her extensive tech skills to make sure all the geek entertainment found on the Slice of Sci-Fi family of websites keeps humming along as well as the previous shows, the Babylon Podcast and Kick-Ass Mystic Ninjas. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present... Outbound from Put-In Bay by M. Bernardo Winter Leroy was trying to tell me something, but I didn't have time for his drunken conspiracies. I needed the 75 bucks for gas, and I needed to get going. The caribou were crossing the lake bed earlier that year and I couldn't afford to miss my chance. Look here, Leroy said. His fingertip made a circle on the chart around some mud hole corner of the West Basin, just off Middle Bass. Look at those hulks there. There must be 15 or 20, and I know they're using them. You've showed me this before, I said, my voice flat and devoid of interest. But I really need that 75 bucks. He jabbed the chart with his finger. We can get there faster than any of them. 
The belladonna draws three feet less than any of them, and we can get through faster than anybody else on channels they can't use. But do they give them to us? You should have bid on them when you had the chance. Leroy roared. I thought they'd use the ones closer to the channel. Now I'm stuck with a lot of useless hulks while the Avon and the Castalia scoop up barrels right by the islands. It was a familiar complaint, the familiar conspiracy. Everybody was out to keep him from making a living, to keep us from making a living. But where Leroy saw ill intent, I saw bad management. I picked up his wallet from the sticky bar and pulled out four grimy 20s. Leroy, I'm taking 80 bucks. You can take it out of my summer pay. Leroy made a defeated motion, waving a hand at the money as though he didn't care one way or the other. If there is any summer pay. Ten minutes later, I was gassed up and skimming down the gentle slope from Put-In Bay to the frozen landscape below. From the crest of the old break wall, 25 feet above the lake bed, I could just barely see the taillights of the other snowmobiles strung out ahead of me in the clear, chill night. It looked like I could still catch them, thank God. Following their tracks as they curved under the crumbling monolith of Perry's Column, I raced past the fluttering twin flags of the Republic of Erie and the Great Lakes Confederacy. The old U.S. government had built that column a hundred years ago to celebrate the centenary of Commodore Perry's capture of the British fleet in the Battle of Lake Erie. 350 feet tall, you used to be able to see the waters where the battle had been fought from its top. Now, you just saw miles and miles of sand dunes and shallow murk. They had said that the water level had started dropping even before the column was finished in 1915. Falling temperatures, decreasing precipitation, expanding glaciers at the poles, the beginning of the new ice age. Now, a hundred years on, the whole west basin of Lake Erie was a soggy sand flat, waist-deep water breached by ranges of dunes that shifted with every storm and crisscrossed by unreliable, treacherous channels. The old islands, North Bass, Middle Bass, South Bass, Kelly's, Pali, the sisters, jutted obscenely above the new flats like the exposed, incongruous lumps of bedrock that they were. There was a place on Kelly's Island where you could still see the scars of the last ice age, the one that had pushed monstrous glaciers down over the continent to create the lake in the first place. There were long, deep grooves worn into the living rock 15,000 years ago. In another thousand years, those grooves and everything around them might be covered by glaciers again, Sheets of ice, gouging out new lakes and raking new islands. In winter, at least, the lake bed looked almost pretty, covered with drifting hummocks of snow, sculpted into weird shapes by the howling gales. Out east towards Cleveland, where the bed dropped another 40 or 50 feet, there was still a proper lake, though it was shrinking every year. And north of Pali, between the islands and Leamington, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Canada had dug a canal through to the Detroit River so the big ships could still navigate the remnants of Erie between Ontario and Michigan. But here, there was only mud and sand and the stink of dead fish. A few miles out from Put-in-Bay, 
I caught up to the train of snowmobiles passing by the skeleton of a sunken lake freighter, a 500-foot monster from the early 20th century, long and narrow with a broken hog back stretched over the lake bed. Out east towards Cleveland, where the bed dropped another 40 or 50 feet, there was still a proper lake, though it was shrinking every year. And north of Pelee, between the islands and Leamington, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Canada had dug a canal through to the Detroit River so the big ships could still navigate the remnants of Erie between Ontario and Michigan. But here, there was only mud and sand and the stink of dead fish. A few miles out from Put-in Bay, I caught up to the train of snowmobiles, passing by the skeleton of a sunken lake freighter, a 500-foot monster from the early 20th century, long and narrow with a broken hog back stretched over the lake bed. An hour later, we dismounted and switched to skis for the last approach to the herd. At least the hunt went well enough. I shot the two caribou I needed to make it through the winter, so long as nothing else went wrong. Then when Angela volunteered to track a doe that a nervous kid had wounded with a messy shot, I said I'd come along too. Around the caribou herd, we never traveled in groups of less than three. There still wasn't much of a permanent wolf population in the Republic of Erie, but as the swelling ice cap and the drying streams pushed herds of grazers farther south in the winters, so too came the predators. These days, it was common to see coy wolves from Canada or free Michigan prowling the frozen flats of the West Basin for game, and there were always packs of feral dogs on the lake bed. Angela wasn't exactly a friend so much as a professional peer. We were both women, both doing much of the same kind of work, trying our best to get by. During the wettest months of the spring and summer, when the West Basin was flooded with winter melt, there was just enough water to run small boats out of Put-in Bay through the deeper channels of the sand flats, as far as the canal on the Canadian side if you wanted to. Those boats were the smugglers, and everybody knew it. There was big money to be made, evading the 100% export tax that the United Kingdom levied on barrels of Canadian crude bound for the refineries in Alleghenia. Angela rode shotgun on the Castalia, and I rode the Belladonna, so we swapped information on Canadian revenue cutters and the occasional lake pirate when we had it. It was the job of the captains to worry about navigation and our job to worry about protection. But we all worried about profits. Those Canucks still keeping you busy on the Castellia in the summers? I asked. Our eyes were on the blood and hoof trails in the snow, so neither Angela nor I looked much at each other. The nervous kid trailed behind. Out of earshot, I hoped. Busy enough, muttered Angela. We can't ever seem to get enough drops. Your drop points suck. They're too close to the channel. There's always cutters in the channel, so the Canucks make the drops deeper on our side where they know we won't be followed and can't be seen. It's killing us. I didn't know what I was fishing for. I didn't expect sympathy, but I knew Leroy was having a hard time. There was a chance for anything. I had to try. Yeah, well, said Angela. Wait till they finish that refinery in Leamington. Then we'll all be dead. I don't suppose you'd want to swap a couple drop points. Angela shook her head. That ain't my department. Got to talk to the captain about that, but I doubt he'd be interested. Why would he? I grunted. I knew it was true. What reason would any of the other boats have to cut their own revenue to help us out? If there weren't enough drops to go around, 
it was better if one of us dried up and blew away. Then Angela said, But if you ever want some work, I know folks who are always looking for winter hands. I shook my head. I knew what that meant. No way. You can make a lot more in one night than you could the rest of the winter. I chafed my hands. It was getting cold. I know what happens when the Canucks catch you up there without a passport. I stay on this side. There's been too many that don't come back. Angela shrugged. The trick is not to stick around. I didn't say anything back, so we were silent until we spied the wounded caribou on the ice a few minutes later. There was an arrow in the doe's haunch, and she lay on a crooked leg, breathing heavily, staining the snow red, and too exhausted to get up again. She was trembling and steaming in the cold air. Angela turned to the kid. This your arrow? The kid nodded. The doe looked tiny to me, and I wondered if the kid had even been shooting at this one or if his arrow had hit her by chance after missing his real target. All right, said Angela, holding out her knife to him. Finish her off and you can carry her back. Summer. I should have turned around and left as soon as I got to the Belladonna and found Curtis there. It's supposed to just be Leroy and me when we move the barrels. There aren't supposed to be any passengers. But Leroy made up some story about how Curtis wanted to learn to navigate the flats, how he was paying his way to see how it was done. It was baloney, but I was stupid enough to swallow it. Then, when we were sitting around the radio in the cabin, listening to the numbers station as Leroy scowled at his code book, I should have known then, too. When I asked him if the drop was ours, I should have known by the way he hesitated before he said yes. But it had been over a week without a drop for us, a week of watching the Avon and the Castalia motor out of the bay in the dark of night and leave us behind. But it was our turn to leave them. They probably had drops to pick up too, but the wind was howling that night and there was at least a four-foot seiche. Somewhere down towards Buffalo, the water was piling up on the eastern end of the lake, pushed into a single, long, unbroken wave, as much as eight or ten feet high, leaving the water out here on the flats even lower than usual. The Avon and the Castalia, with their deeper drafts, would be useless until the wind fell. But the Belladonna was a swing-keel yacht, powered by her sails alone and with a much shallower draft. She was smaller and slower than the other boats, but she could go places where they couldn't in less water. That's why Leroy bought her in the first place. It had been a canny move, his only one. It was wasted when he leased those drop sites out by the channel where a boat like the Belladonna didn't have much advantage anyway. There was no way for anybody else to know where we were headed, and a good thing, too, with the pirates around. The numbers broadcast came openly on AM frequencies from Leamington. Just strings of numbers all day and all night. Most of them were meaningless garbage, but a rare few were codes for drop sites where the runners from Canada had stashed barrels of crude earlier in the night. Only by knowing the code for a particular drop site could you tell whether any barrels had been stashed there. And nobody knew the codes except the captain they were leased to. The moonlit sandbars slipped silently by as the Belladonna threaded out of put-in bay into the shallow, twisting channels, Leroy fighting hard to keep her on course against the raging wind.
This was dangerous in the dark, especially with the water so low, and I knew that Leroy was piloting largely by memory. Like an old steamboat captain on the Mississippi, he often avoided running aground simply by remembering where the hazards lay. But much like the Mississippi, things could change from day to day. When the storms blew across the lake, channels could shift by dozens of yards. Sometimes they simply needed to be felt out again. Not that the danger wasn't life-threatening, not here. The yacht was ballasted with sandbags which could be swapped out for the barrels later, but otherwise it was empty. Running over a sandbar would ordinarily just push the swing keel up inside the hold, slowing the yacht until it coasted to a stop on the sand, but keeping it mostly level and unharmed. There it would sit until Leroy could catch it off with the dinghy or until it could be towed free if it was grounded too firmly for that. It meant losing money and time, but not certain destruction. On the way back, however, with a hold full of smuggled oil, getting stranded was more serious. The revenue cutters didn't usually stray far out of the canal on the Canadian side, but there were other unsavory folk about. As the Belladonna swung north to pass by Middle Bass, I realized we were sailing on a course we'd never taken before. My hands tightened around the stock of my rifle, and I turned to Leroy. Where are we going? To the drop. Not this way we aren't. Leroy just licked his lips. I swapped for this one. My face darkened. The extra man, Leroy's nervousness, and now this obvious lie... It all added up to something bad. And whatever it was, Leroy didn't want to tell me, which was even worse. For all I knew, we were heading straight across the channel to Leamington in UK waters for some secret reason. I hadn't signed up for that, and I never would have agreed to it. Sailing up there without a passport was almost guaranteed suicide. But just before dawn, Leroy dropped anchor next to a hulk. Somehow we were at a drop site but not one I'd ever seen before. By then, of course, there was nothing to do and nowhere to go. I couldn't leave, couldn't even protest if I wanted to. Leroy was the damn captain, and I was his crew. He paid me to stand on the deck with a gun. If I didn't like it, all I could do was refuse to sail with him again. And depending on what we were doing here, I thought I might. I scanned the horizon while Leroy and Curtis shifted the barrels. I had to admit, that was one good thing about having another hand along. I didn't have to mess with the tedious loading. Soon, the wind fell and the seisha baited a bit. With water so low on the bed, you could actually see it surging back among the sandbars, lifting driftwood and garbage on the rising tide. To the east, the sky was just growing light. Out there, beyond the mist, was supposed to be a real lake still. As a girl growing up in Sandusky, I remembered seeing it on our rare trips across the bay. Even then, 40 years ago, Sandusky Bay had been silted over, a stinking mire filled with storm-washed clumps of algae and hordes of gulls pecking for bugs and mussels. It was worse now, and it would keep getting worse. They said the other lakes were better, Michigan and Huron, Ontario and Superior. Every one of them was substantially deeper than Erie. Every one of them was still a real lake, or so they said. I'd never seen them, and it had been ages since I'd even seen the deep water in the central basin of Erie. 
Leroy and Curtis finished shifting the barrels just as the sun cracked the horizon. But as they hauled the dinghy back up, I spied a speck in the channel to the south and cursed. Somebody's coming, I said. Leroy gave a quick glance in the direction of my gaze and redoubled his efforts to stow the dinghy. I cursed again. He'd been expecting this. Just fifteen minutes more, he muttered, setting the sails. How long do we have? I glared at him, then looked back to the south. Now that the water had risen a couple feet, the same channel we had crept up so gingerly was now a broad thoroughfare, and the approaching boat was coming up fast, the drone of its motor increasingly audible over the wind. I knew that channel was a direct line from Put-In Bay to the drop site, and I knew exactly which two boats might be coming up from there to this drop site. Which one is it, I asked. I hoped to hell it was the Avon. In response, a bullet thunked into the cabin wall near me. I dropped to the deck and sighted down towards the boat with my rifle scope. It was the goddamn Castalia. I could tell from the belt-fed machine gun mounted on the forward deck. So far, Angela was just pinging wildly at us with her rifle. But as soon as they got close enough to slack their speed, she'd unship that machine gun and we'd come under heavier fire. Somehow, Leroy must have seen the Castalia's code book, and now we've been caught stealing their barrels red-handed. I felt the Belladonna's sails catch the breeze, and suddenly we were slipping away from the hulk. Leroy was yelling at me, and it was a minute before I realized he was asking why I didn't return fire. I turned on him from my spot on the deck, my eyes filled with rage. Because we're the pirates, goddamn you! I'm not going to fire on them for coming to their own hulk! Leroy swore again and started scanning the channel ahead. I could guess what he was thinking. We're fully loaded. Leroy shook his head. Their draft is still deeper and the sash isn't fully slack yet. And suddenly we were shearing off to the side, out of the main channel and up some shallow, silty creek. There was a soft bump as the keel brushed against sand and my heart stood in my mouth. If we beached ourselves now, the Castalia would eat us up with their machine gun while they sat comfortably in the main channel. Even if they didn't kill us, the boat would never sail again, and we'd be finished. But after a moment of agony, the swing keel slid down again, and the Belladonna sped into a slightly deeper part of the creek. Behind us, I could see the Castalia piling on speed, trying to force her way through the shallow part. I sighed in relief. It was a stupid move, and sure enough, the Castalia crunched to a stop on the submerged sandbar, swung around, and rested steeply canted on its side. There it would hang, at least until the sage fully subsided and the water got back its last foot of depth, or they might be stuck until they could get towed off. We're not out of it yet, said Leroy. I glanced ahead, but I couldn't see anything. Behind us, two rifle shots cracked in the morning air, ripping a couple of holes in the sail. She'll shoot out the rigging, shouted Curtis. I just laughed. Nobody on South Bass was a good enough shot to do that. It was a machine gun we had to worry about, and I prayed we'd put on enough range to give us a chance before Angela got desperate enough to use it. Then Leroy shouted, and the Belladonna sheared to port. I felt the bow touch ground, and in a moment the swing keel had clicked up into the hole and we were stuck fast. Looking over the side, I could only see muddy water below, 
but we were obviously hung up on a submerged sandbar just under the dull gray surface. Damn it, muttered Leroy. We almost made it. Looking back, I could see Angela suddenly jump to life. The leveling of the sage would raise both our boats, and if we'd both drifted free at the same time, they'd still catch us despite our lead. But if the Belladonna drifted free first, we'd likely get away. Angela tossed aside her rifle, and my insides turned to water. Get down, I hissed, dragging Curtis to the deck after me. Leroy didn't have to be told twice. The first burst of the machine gun sprayed wide above us. The pounding of the gun was otherworldly, but the soft whistling of the shells was appalling. Glancing back, I could see Angela wrestling the gun down on its deck mount for a better shot. Then the belt jumped and slithered, and a half a second later, the pounding booms echoed again. This time, as Angela fought against the recoil of the gun, she dragged the arc of the fire down towards the belladonna. I winced as a burst of shells struck the bow of the boat above the waterline, making a series of dull splats as they chewed the wood into splinters. I gritted my teeth and waited for the next burst, which would probably rake the rigging in the deck, crippling the belladonna and quite possibly killing us all. But instead, the same burst came again, chewing at the last exposed fragments of the bow tip. Peeking back at the Castalia, I saw what had happened. With the way the Castalia was listing on the sand, the machine gun wasn't able to swing around any further. As Angela tried to get a bead on us, the muzzle kept clanging against the railing on the Castalia's deck, and for now at least, it couldn't hit anything except that same small patch of the bow. Leroy saw it too, and we both knew it was a damn lucky break. It didn't put us in the clear. The water could rise that extra foot at any moment, and even if the Castellia didn't float clear, she was likely to shift back towards level, which would probably put the gun in position to finish us off. We better catch off, said Leroy. I nodded. My heart felt like it was fluttering, and I was getting lightheaded. Whatever Leroy was, he wasn't a coward. Catching off meant taking an anchor out ahead of the Belladonna in a dinghy and using its weight to pull her off the sandbar. The deck gun probably couldn't hit the dinghy either, but Angela had her rifle, and a man made a fair target in the scope at 200 yards. Wait a minute, I said. Leroy was already unshipping the dinghy as cautiously as he could, but I wanted to see what Angela would do next. As far as I could tell, she had abandoned the gun and dropped below deck. Go ahead, I said. There was no better time to launch the dinghy than when Angela was otherwise occupied. Leroy pointed at Curtis. You get ready by the rudder. If she starts to slip, we need to take whatever we get. And we better stay hard to port if we don't want to get shot up. Then he lowered the anchor carefully down into the dinghy. What can I do? Leroy jerked his head back towards the Castalia. Cover me, he said. As Leroy paddled out, I crawled back aft and pointed my rifle out towards the Castalia. I had no intention of shooting any of them. We were still the pirates in this scenario, after all, but I wanted to see what was going on. Through the rifle scope, I could see Angela back on deck. 
She had a hacksaw in her hand and was pumping her arm up and down, sawing furiously at the deck railing that was hindering the gun's motion. Once more, I felt sick inside. I glanced back towards the bow, hoping that Leroy was quick about the kedging. Looking back through the scope, I absently touched the trigger guard with my forefinger. The rifle was loaded, as always, and each time Angela drew her arm back, I had a clean shot straight to her elbow. It was a tricky shot with her arm in motion, but with a couple quick squeezes and steady hands, I had a good chance to hit all the same. I'd seen shattered elbows before, not lethal, of course, but debilitating enough. If I could make the shot, we wouldn't have to worry about the machine gun or the rifle anymore. Not in Angela's hands, anyway. I thumbed the safety and inched forward to a better spot. I slowed my breathing, taking deep, regular breaths. I saw nothing but the elbow flashing up and down in the scope, a bright patch of bare skin rising and falling in view of the morning light. I tried to fall in with its rhythm, took one last deep breath, and rested my finger on the trigger. Then I exhaled. I flipped the safety back on and growled angrily at myself. I knew what could happen to a woman alone on the islands who couldn't work and couldn't fight. I'd been close enough to the edge myself that I knew how little it could take to send you into the abyss. I didn't know how close Angela was, but even a non-lethal shot could have fatal consequences out here. I wouldn't do it to her. I watched Angela take one last stroke with the hacksaw and then bend the railing as much as she could. It wasn't enough, so she shifted and started rasping the blade on the other side of the offending section. It was a race now between Leroy's cadge anchor and Angela's hacksaw. Whoever finished the job first would be the victor, and our lives hung in the balance. Then I felt the boat slip. Curtis looked down and jammed the rudder hard to port. Then he jumped to the sails and shifted them to catch the full force of the wind. They billowed out, sunlight streaming through the two bullet holes as the canvas filled with the lake breeze. And just like that, we were off again, unstuck and whisked away into the channel, speeding to freedom and life away from the Castalia. Leroy was jubilant when he climbed back aboard, but he stowed his celebration as soon as he saw my face. He spent the rest of the trip back to South Bass avoiding me, which was just fine by me. Back in Put-In Bay, I waited until after the crew had been unloaded and paid for before I lifted him by the front of his shirt and dragged him into an alley. What the hell was that about? Fifteen more minutes and we would have been out of sight. Nobody ever would have known, I growled. They would have known. They would have thought it was just a mistake in the code. It happens often enough. I shook him a little. Everybody saw us leave, and everybody saw the way we went. Everybody knows we brought crude back. They would have known. Leroy shook his head, trembling now. They're going to take my boat. I had to mortgage it this year just to outfit it. We haven't gotten hardly any drops. Why should it all go to them? They don't need it like I do. I just need a few. He laughed, his voice rising to the edge of hysteria. And what else should I do? Get a loan from you? I felt that one, like a slap in the face. I'd borrowed hundreds of dollars from Leroy over the years, maybe thousands. 
But still, this was too much. I had to make this right. Give me the money. Leroy turned pale, but he shook his head, clasping the envelope closer. I punched him once across the chin, hard. He crumpled against the alley wall, not unconscious, but defeated all the same. I left him there and walked away with the money. When the Castellia came back, I was waiting for Angela. She took the envelope silently and counted the money with her face set in a stony scowl. I didn't know it was your drop until you showed up, I said. That's why I didn't shoot back. Angela just grunted. Despite getting the money back, I could tell she was furious all the same. If he ever goes to somebody else's drop again, I said, I'll shoot him myself. I'll tell him so, too. Fine. I hope this can be the end of this. Angela finally looked up at me, her yellow eyes looking into mine. She looked tired and sad, not angry like I expected. Fine. Then, since I didn't leave, she asked, Is there something else? That winter job, I said. If you can give me an advance now, I'll do whatever you need. Winter. It was 25 miles as the crow flies from South Bass to Leamington. Even on a snowmobile, it should have felt like a short jaunt, but instead it felt like an endless journey into another world. Somehow, Canada had kept herself together in the chaos of the past century. Water shortages and crop failures had pushed the world into chaos, resulting in 30 years of bloody war in Europe and the fracturing in the United States. The regional administrations that formed in the former U.S. barely had the resources to execute the few laws they passed. But despite the advancing ice fields that was already pushing down through Hudson's Bay, Canada had retained some semblance of civilization. It had law and order and calm British resolve in the face of cataclysm. On the way up, I navigated first by dead reckoning, motoring across the cold lake bed and pausing occasionally to check that I was still following the compass needle northeast. When I was conscious of the bulk of Palee rising to the east of me, I switched to dead north. That massive island, dark and solid above the lake bed, was a reminder that I was already deep into the UK half of Erie. By the time I neared the channel, I could see the glow of the Leamington refinery well enough to steer by. For now, the refinery was only partially finished and only able to process a small fraction of the crew that the Canucks were frantically pumping out of their oil fields before the glaciers sealed it all in for the next 10,000 years. But when the rest of the refinery was finished in a year or two, it would quadruple its capacity and smuggling crude would make a lot less sense. Angela was right. When the refinery was finished, so were we. As Pelee fell behind me, I slowed and kept my eye out for the channel. This was the most dangerous part of the trip. Angela had told me it had been a few days since an icebreaker had gone through, so the channel should easily be firm enough to take the weight of my snowmobile. But if she was wrong, I could end up floundering around in frigid waters, or even frozen to death if the snowmobile sank irretrievably. Slowly, I nosed the snowmobile across the channel. The ice creaked and groaned under its skis, but held firm. 
Sighting the heaped ridges on the other side of the icebreaker's track, I gunned the motor and darted across the last few yards to safety. All I had to do now was avoid any patrols on the Canadian side until I reached the rendezvous in Leamington. Then I was to hand over the small bundle I was carrying, turn around, and get back to put in bay before anyone else saw me in Canada. Flying back over the ice heading south, I caught sight of lights off to the west of me. Cursing, I flipped off my own headlights but didn't dare slack my speed. The snowmobile went plunging recklessly over hummocks and ridges as I glanced back to the lights of the Leamington refinery to take my bearing again. The lights ahead were the icebreaker. They had to be. There couldn't be anything else that big and bright on the lake this time of year. In Leamington, they told me that it was on its way and that I would never make it back across the channel before it crossed. But I didn't mean to stay in Canada for another three days or longer until the channel ice hardened again. I didn't mean to stay there one night. It was too dangerous, especially among people I didn't know and who had little reason to protect me. If I didn't want to spend the rest of my life hoeing potatoes in a Canadian work camp, I had to make it back to South Bass that night. I veered a little to the east to try to get out ahead of the icebreaker. It was coming on damn fast, making good time chewing through the lake ice like a horse through clover, and its heavy nose surging steadily ahead as sheets broke and splintered before it. I could see the outline of the superstructure now, at least the parts lit up by the bridge lights. I corrected my course a little to the east again. I had to cross far enough ahead so I didn't get myself run over. It was going to be close. I forced myself to take my eyes off the icebreaker. I was locked into my line now, and it was no good watching the boat. All I could do is shoot as fast as I could in front of it. As my snowmobile dropped down the ridge into the iced-over channel, I stole a look to my left. It loomed beside me, but I knew already. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'd make it. Even as the ice buckled and crunched on my right, I roared over the channel towards the ridge on the other side. Maybe I shouldn't have done it, but hitting the channel south ridge with my headlights off felt like a suicide move. If I jammed into an ice bank or tipped over, I could still be run over by the icebreaker. 
So at the last moment, I flipped on my headlights, and I saw I was about to hit straight into a solid wall of ice. Breaking hard, I swerved left and then right, climbing up a snowy rill and out of the channel. I had almost made it to the flat ice beyond when I heard shouts from the icebreaker behind me. Too late, I shut off my headlights again, but suddenly the ice all around me was lit with a dazzling white glow. The only dark spot ahead was my own shadow, stretched out obscenely in front of me across the sparkling snow. They turned on a floodlight on the icebreaker. Even then, I knew there were men on the rails, raising rifles, taking aim at the dark spot retreating across the ice, squeezing triggers. For a second, I thought I'd hit something. The snowmobile swerved hard to one side, and I jammed hard to the other side. The skis swished through the snow, leaving deep cuts, slowing the sled down. But then I gunned the engine again and raced off south alongside the dark bulk of Pali, back towards South Bass as fast as I could go. But by then I knew that I hadn't hit anything at all. Something had hit me. My right arm was numb, tingling with pins and needles, and suddenly I felt my throat closing up. I coughed, shook my head, and leaned forward on the snowmobile. Sharp, searing pain blossomed out of my right shoulder. My hand ached, my head rang, and my lungs seized up again. I loosened my jacket around my throat. I had to keep going. I couldn't pass out. I had to keep going as far as I could. By the time I left Pali behind me, my right arm felt like a hundred-pound weight. I could feel the blood seeping out of the hole in my shoulder and my blood pressure dropping. Light and dark splotches danced across my vision. I had to get around North Bass and Middle Bass. I had to get out into the lights of Put-In Bay. And then what? If I could get that far. If I could just get that far. I hoped to hell that someone would look for me and bring me back before I bled or froze to death on the lake bed. I hoped to hell I'd live long enough to find out if I ever made a single friend on South Bass. I hoped to hell that someone on the whole damn island wanted me alive and would lift a finger to keep me from dying. On and on I went, as far as I possibly could. On and on, in the sickening drone of the snowmobile until at last there was just no further that I could go. And there, in the middle of the ice, under the moonless and starless sky, the night got darker, and my body lay still as the snow started to fall slowly, silently down upon me from the clouds. It seemed impossible that I should ever wake again, but I did. I woke in a bed, in a room, in daylight, my arm and shoulder bandaged and immobilized. I looked around. Leroy was there, sitting in a chair at the foot of the bed, reading the almanac for the new year. Sunlight bounced off a clean white sheet of new-fallen snow, dazzling me through the window. I put my hand to my face and groaned. I was covered in sweat. My hair was soaked with it. Leroy put down his book and looked up at me. He smiled. Awake now? I opened my mouth, but it was parched. There was a glass of water on a table by the bed. Wincing, I pulled myself up and drank long from the cool glass. At last, I said, 
Yes. It was all I could manage. Angela brought you in, said Leroy, two nights ago. I assume you know you were shot? I nodded my head, trying to stretch out my back and neck. As I moved, a stabbing pain ran out from my shoulder and down my arm and back. I screwed my eyes shut and drew a sharp breath. Twice, actually, added Leroy. Twice, I asked. But why not? Once, twice, a dozen times. It was just a difference in degree at that point. How soon until I have to go back? I had a big debt to work off yet. Leroy shook his head. I don't think you do. What? I asked. Why not? Look. Leroy pointed out the window. I turned my head and flinched away from the bright sunlight. But as my eyes grew accustomed to the glare, I could just barely see something on the horizon far to the north. Some black cloudy column rising up from somewhere beyond the lake. What's that? That's the refinery at Leamington, answered Leroy. Twenty-four hours and it's still burning, hot and hard. It'll set him back five years at least. I tried to connect the tiny splotch of smoke on the horizon with the enormous refinery I had seen on the Leamington skyline. The timing was too much to be a coincidence. Whatever was in the package I had delivered had obviously been the last link in the chain, the last piece that Angela's Canuck context had needed to ensure that smuggling wouldn't die out after all. Plant schematics, forged identification cards, detonators, I'd probably never find out. But whatever it was, it had worked. Five years, I asked. Maybe ten, said Leroy, the sound of jubilation in his voice. I sank back into the bed again. Ten more years of this? Ten more years of scrabbling for an existence on the lake bed? Chasing coy wolves away from down caribou, slipping out to pick up barrels of crude in the pre-dawn dark, gunning across the lake ice ahead of a homicidal icebreaker. Ten more years? And then I realized that somehow I had been waiting for that refinery. I had been waiting for it to upend my life and to force me off the belladonna and out of Put-In Bay. Hearing it was gone was like getting a ten-year extension on a prison sentence. Hell, ten years might easily be a life sentence out here. I was getting older and things were getting tougher. Someday, and probably soon, there'd come a winter that I just wouldn't live through. Hey, Leroy, I said. Who owes who now? Leroy laughed. After what you did to get me that boat payment this year, I'd say we're about even. I nodded. Good, I said, but it sounded like little more than a sigh. I didn't say anything else just then. I was too tired and too sore. But it was good to know my debts were paid up, because come spring, I hoped to be on Michigan or Huron, Ontario or Superior. It wasn't anything against Leroy or the Belladonna, or even against Put-In Bay or Erie. But I'd always lived here in the West Basin, and it seemed like maybe it was time to try someplace new. Hopefully someplace a little farther from the edge of the abyss, 
and maybe even some place where the water was still blue. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is M. Bernardo and Summer. Thank you so much. What a fantastic narration. Thank you. That story you've just heard there first came out in Asimov Science Fiction, the February 2013, edited by Sheila Williams. So, like I say, next up is we've got an interview with Kate Cerise Wright, who has wrote this novel, cyber, or cyberpunk novel called Cog. And I've as soon as I kind of seen it out in there, in the, in the kind of in the tubes and on the internet, I was trying to get a, in, in touch with Cerise and just have a little chat with her as well, you know, about this fantastic book. So this is an interview I carried out the other day with Kate Cerise Wright. So we're joined by Kate Cerise Wright on the, the telephone there or on Skype there now. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very well. And listen, thank you so much for coming on Starship Sova. Thank you for having me. I've been here and there's, on the in kind of down the tubes and on the internet there. There's all this talk about this new novel coming out, Cog. And as, as soon as I seen it, and I kind there was references to cyberpunk. It just got us so excited, and I just had to get you on the show. So tell us a little bit about Cog. Well, Cog is a cyberpunk book, and uh, my protagonist Nicole Ryder is a curator at a holographic art museum, and her passion is bringing fine art to the public. So she's recreating the Prado in the Anacostia section of Washington, D.C. Um, but her brother and her father work at the family hologram provider company. And unbeknownst to her, her father just discovered that he had a child out of wedlock, a son who's about now 30, and he's going to bring him into the company. And her other brother, Wills, of course, objects to this, and he embezzles $50 million of company money and skips town. That same day, her father falls into a coma, and the head of IT asks Nicole to take over the company to help save jobs and to um, mitigate the backlash in the media. So she reluctantly agrees, at least for a little while, before they can find someone else to take her place, because that's not her passion. And her bodyguard tries to kill her the day before she starts, so she has to leave town with the head of IT. And she used to be an ex-addict who worked for a drug dealer. So she goes to him for help. And, of course, he wants her to do something for him in return for his help. So, you know, when you, when you start this, what I'm re- interested to find out as well is, were you always going to set it in the cyberpunk tropes? You know, yes, you, you science fiction, but were you always going to kind of wrap it in that field? Or was it just something you thought, this is the way the story's developing? No, I loved cyberpunk from the moment I first read Neuromancer by William Gibson. I was a latecomer to the genre, or subgenre, I guess. I didn't read it until I was in my 30s. But I, I adored it. I loved it. I love the tight writing because I don't like a lot of descriptive narrative. Uh, I read some Ray Bradbury, and he's a great writer, but sometimes I had to just skip over until I got to some dialogue because I like the action so when I read Cyberpunk, I said, oh, I have to try and write this. And at the time, I was a, a financial analyst. I was always good at writing, and, but I always loved science fiction. So I tried to write a story, and I put it online, and people said they really liked it. So I said, hey, I want to write a book. But I didn't know how to write a book, so I applied to some writing, creative writing programs. And I found one that taught science fiction. And I started out writing this book as my thesis. 
Did anybody say, you know, it, you were taking a bit of a risk, you know, writing a novel, you know, there's a kind of lot of hard work goes in there and then you're setting it in this kind of, say, a 30-odd year plus, you know, trope of science fiction? Right, but luckily within the Seton Hill University program, um, writing popular fiction, they encourage you to write a book, science fiction, other genres, science fiction, horror, romance, and the like. And someone did say, you know, cyberpunk is a little, you know, outdated, but I loved it so much. I said, well, hey, I have to bring it back. I don't care if it's old. I'm bringing it back. Oh, that's fun. Honestly, that's when I, when I seen it, because I seen a post on SF Single and I thought, oh, yes. You know what I mean? We kind of need more cyberpunk in our kind of lives. So that's I'm just fantastic. Did you, before you started, did you maybe dip yourself or dip your toes back in this, the cyberpunk world? You know, like writers like, you know, Gibson and everyone like that. Or did you think, push it all aside and just try and concentrate on your universe of cyberpunk? I read uh, some authors, of course, Pat Cadigan, Bruce Sterling, uh, William Gibson, Lewis Shiner, uh, Shiner, some John Shirley, and um, but I have my own style, of course, and I said, well, I don't want to go, you know, the pure cyberpunk route. I want to bring in some, you know, new elements. You know, I don't think I've ever read a science fiction story that dealt with the world of fine art. Um, corporate America, of course, but not fine art. So I thought that would be sort of interesting to juxtapose it against a dystopian background and corporate America. Is, is COG a standalone novel or is there more, is there more we'll find out in this universe in future novels? I wrote it as a standalone because at the time I was just trying to get through with my thesis and get it finished and graduate. So I wasn't even thinking about, oh, maybe this could be a trilogy, you know, which is all the rage now. So, of course, you can always take your characters and, you know, continue them on. But that was not my intent at the, at the start. How about, you know, when you say you, you, you went to a kind of writing school to, or, you know, you, you joined some classes and how is the art of writing for you? Did you find writing cog was pretty, pretty easy or was it? Because I've spoken to a few people, you know, and quite a number of writers will say it's like, you know, cutting your veins sometimes to get the words on the page. It's difficult. And <laughs> the thing that got me through was that I had deadlines. You know, I had to have, you know, 20 pages by a certain amount of time. So I think that helped me. And I think I still need that actually. So will it be, will, maybe not just in say the cog universe, is there anything else like cyberpunk? Is, is cyberpunk your genre? You kind of think, right, I'm going to kind of go in this field, in this direction. Is there going to be more work by in cyberpunk areas? Yes. Uh, I am working on a uh, book with actually uh, Arthurian author Rachel Pruitt who wrote The Dragon's Heart because she went to my school and we always said wow it'd be really cool to juxtapose cyberpunk and Arthurian world together so we're trying to make that happen right now I'm also working on a paranormal romance uh, to try something new so that sounds like it could be fun so Am I right in thinking this is your now your day job? Have you still got some, you know, like a day? You haven't jumped both feet in, have you? And now writing's the, your main income? Oh, no, no. I still have a day job. I need benefits. <laughs> <laughs> would you, is, it, is this a dream, is it, Sarah? To, to it would be a dream to, to just uh, make a living on my writing. Uh, but, you know, it'll take some time. It's, a, it's, a, it's such a big step, you know, to kind of 
to, to go down that avenue, you know, especially if you're kind of nice, got a nice, comfortable job, say, you know, and but the kind of the dream to be a writer, do you know what I mean? It's um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, it forces you to wake up in the morning and and interact with other people. You know, I'm sort of an introvert, so if I stayed home all day, I'm I'm afraid I might turn into a hermit. So <laughs> I would have, to, I think I would have to at least work part time. So, Rich, you couldn't tell us a little bit about the the artist. I, I know he's called Bradley Sharp, but he's done a crack and cover with with this novel. Do, do you know anything about him? No. Um, well, my publisher, um, Raw Dog Screaming Press, they had their ten year anniversary this year, and they wanted to do something different. So they started a science fiction imprint called Dog Star Books, and Heidi Ruby Miller, who I also went to school with. Uh, asked for my manuscript and she, she really liked it. And, um, they decided to do, to publish it and to find a artist for the covers for their entire line. Uh, I think the publisher, Jennifer Barnes went on deviant art, which is a website that artists put their, their art on. And she saw Bradley Sharp's work and she really loved it. So she contacted him and said, we have a new imprint. We want you to do a series of covers for them. And he agreed. And mine was the first cover, I believe. And I saw it and I was blown away. Actually, I love uh, her shoes on the cover. They are really bad. They're so, so nice. And I, I wish I could, you know, buy a pair. Uh, and I love her outfit as well. And the way she's crouching down as, you know, she's on the run, you know, but she's dressed in this great outfit with these stiletto heels and you don't go on the run in stilettos unless you have absolutely no choice so i thought the cover really fit really well and i i'm you know can't wait to see what other covers he's going to do for the line well i'm on their their website now and i love their philosophy it says their philosophy like their tagline is science fiction that goes for the throat you know and i've never heard it like say i know a dog star <laughs> which is you know but i've never heard it enough just all that you know like say that philosophy there is fantastic it's just right up my street and like you say the, the art covers, because I see there as well, there's Mike Resnick, you know, is is in there as well. He's got, they've got a book coming out or he's got it out by, you know, Dogstar as well. So that's, um, that's fantastic to be quite, and like I say, the, the artwork, it's always for me, you know, I know that's kind of maybe a, bit, a little bit shallow, but I always kind of look at the artwork first, you know, and you think, yes, that's, you know, that'll do for me. Oh, yes, exactly. I mean, they always say never judge a book by its cover. In fact, when I picked up New Romancer, it had this awful, horrible <laughs> cover that it, it looked like somebody just upchucked a bunch of grape juice and, and yogurt. But um, at the top, it said winner of the Hugo, the Philip K. Dick, and the Nebula Awards. So I said, well, never judge a book by its cover. Um, but I'm so glad that I have a great cover for my book. You, you said you, you came. Did you come to like cyberpunk late or did you come to reading late just i'm just interested you know it did was part of you like you growing up reading science fiction or was that something that yes i grew up reading the classics isaac asimov um ray bradbury arthur c clark kurt vonnegut and i think i i finished the foundation trilogy and in the robot series and i said wow there's nothing really more for me to read so you know i think i'll switch over to mystery and then <laughs> you know then you go to college and you start hanging out and reading becomes secondary and then you know i got into the work world and then i saw you know this book on a actually it was on a coworker's bookshelf and i said hey can i read this and they said sure take it and that's when i got into cyberpunk 
What about, you know, like, say, when you were younger, were you kind of headed in that direction by your parents? Or was it was reading something that you kind of just, you know, you picked a, your own book off the shelf and, and went that way? Well, when I was growing up, we didn't have all the cell phones and the TV that was on 24 hours a day. So, and I was an only child, so I did read a lot. I did, you know, play games by myself. Um, my parents loved to read, so my mother would... When I was young, she would read me maybe 10, 15, 20 books, you know, every night. So something reading was something that I was taught early on. Um, however, they never told me what, what to read, just made sure that I did read. And then when I was in the fourth grade, I read The Wonderful Flight to the Mushroom Planet. And I said, oh, my gosh, I love this book. I love the space thing. So that started me on science fiction. So getting back to COG then, Cerise, what have you, you know, is there kind of much reviews? Is it getting, you know, is there like a lot of kind of buzz about it? Are you getting some good feedback or is it just kind of when, because I've never, obviously never put out a book like this. Is, I don't know what it's like, you know, are you getting good feedback? Yes, I have some good uh, reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. So I'm very pleased about that. And how are you kind of publicizing it? How are you pushing it yourself? Are you doing this kind of, or are you letting your kind of book publisher go down that route and do it for you? Well, we're both sort of doing it. She had planned um, to make the official announcement at Confluence, uh, which is a science fiction convention in Pittsburgh, but it was canceled this year. So we had to move the announcement to the Thurber House, which is a literary center in Columbus, Ohio. And we did that um, in July. And we also had a book signing at my alma mater, Seton Hill University, in June. And I will be attending Capclave, which is a science fiction convention of the Washington Science Fiction Association. It will be in Gaithersburg uh, the second weekend in, in October. And it's going to be a madhouse because George R. R. Martin will be there. Well, Cerise, honestly, I just can't wish you enough. You know, I just hope this book kind of takes off and just goes ballistic for you because it's just something right up my street you know what I mean so I'm just Excellent. so pleased you've kind of you've, you've you know ignored you know you've just wrote you wrote you know I'm gonna do you know cyberpunk and that's what I'm doing I'm, that's what I'm sticking to that's just fantastic <laughs> thank you Cerise thank you so much for coming on Starship Sofa you're very welcome thank you for having me Now, I've put a link on to Kay Cerise's Wright's site, and she's also telling us, well, she blogs over at Amazing Stories, so I've put a link directly to her site over there at Amazing Stories as well. So do pop over and do get yourself a copy of that book, you know what I mean, either Kindle or paperback format or hardback, whatever it comes in. It would be fantastic. Next up is another story by M. Bernardo. This is The Water Finds Its Level. The story first appeared in the fantastic Lightspeed, edited by John Joseph Adams. Now, this one's narrated by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. And Adam, I've got Amy on as more times than I can kind of imagine, but Adam has, you know, got a bio for Amy, so I might as well, you know, not, not waste it, so I'll read Amy H. Sturgis's bio out. 
Amy is an author, editor, scholar, educator, speaker and podcaster with specialities in the field of science fiction, fantasy and Native American studies. She lives with her husband, Dr. Larry H. Hall, M. Hall, should I say, and the best friend, Virginia, the Boston Terrier in the foothills of North Carolina, USA. There you go, Ames. I know what you say, it's Ames. <laughs> There's the official bio. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present Water Finds Its Level by M. Bernardo. Would you still love me if I were exactly the same? He'd ask. But was a Civil War reenactor? Shut up, I'd say. What if I were exactly the same? He'd say. But refused to eat anywhere except McDonald's. Shut up. Or what if I greased my hair with pomade and went tanning every week? That's when I would give him the death ray glare. If you want me to stop loving you right now, I'd say, you can keep asking those stupid questions. You know why, Jennifer. But it doesn't work like that, I'd say. You can't do those things and still be exactly the same in every other way. If you did those things, you'd be somebody else. So just shut up, because I don't want to think about it. When people asked where I met Roger, I always told the truth. We met in the collision, I'd say. Then they'd give me that look that people used to give you when you told them that you met somebody online. The look that said you must be reckless, or naive, or desperate, and that no good would come of it. It got better over time, of course, once more people understood, once they had to understand. By the time it was all over, I was the weird one, still living a single life, still just one of a kind. And Roger, I guess they understood him better. It started in the kitchen of my apartment, like a thin spot in the wall or an echo coming through the ventilation ducts. I didn't think anything of it at first, since it was the kind of thing you hear in apartments all the time, someone else's private life bleeding through into your living space. Usually it's a murmur, at most, a background drone. Sometimes it's suddenly and uncomfortably clear, a laugh or an angry shout that's hardly muffled at all. I just ignored it. It was just somebody who had moved in next door, somebody on the other side of my walls, somebody who had brought their own new sounds that would become partly my sounds, too. I knew how it worked. If we ever passed in the hall, we would pretend we didn't hear each other. I wasn't the sort to complain. The walls were thin. My kitchen had an echo. That was all. That was all, at least, until the day I was pulling a casserole out of the oven, singing some share to myself, too loud, I guess, because suddenly and without warning, a man's voice was at my ear, not through the wall, not above the ceiling, but in the kitchen, at my ear. All right, it said, in tones of exasperation. Is somebody there? I dropped the dish, and the casserole exploded into shards of glass and soggy macaroni. I bolted for the living room, heart pounding as the voice shouted behind me. The mess 
sat on my kitchen floor for three whole days before I worked up the nerve to go back in there and clean it up. It was the news that saved me. That's how I found out that I wasn't the only one. They had a whole segment about these strange disembodied voices coming out of the air, in people's houses, in offices, at the shopping mall, everywhere and anywhere. They started as indistinct mutters, but were growing clearer. Some people said they could make out whole sentences. Nobody could explain it, but it sounded a lot like what happened to me. Despite some frightening encounters, said the newscaster, no one has reported any physical contact. The voices appear to be just that, voices. That evening, I lay alone in my bed. The covers pulled up to my face even though it was a warm night. I could hear footsteps in my apartment, as if somebody were walking from room to room. I could hear doors opening and even the toilet flushing. At last, the footsteps came into my bedroom. I waited until they came close, and then I took a deep breath, pulling up all the courage in my body. I called out softly. Hey, I said, there is somebody here. Then I paused, feeling stupid. I'm Jennifer. A long minute passed in total silence. Then somebody, a man, said, Okay. Then he paused. I'm Roger. He claimed he wasn't really a disembodied voice. He said he was just a normal guy with a body, and that he'd been hearing the same kinds of sounds in his apartment. But my voice, my footsteps, my shattering casserole dish, somehow we could hear each other. We found out pretty quickly that we lived in the same city, then on the same street. I didn't want to tell him my address, but he told me his. It was the same, down to the apartment number. According to Roger, we lived in the same apartment. At that, I asked the only sensible question. What year is it for you? What date? It was the same date. That was where we left it that first night. It was getting too spooky. I had almost been willing to believe in a hole in space or time, a ventilation duct through the universe where two people in different places or times could accidentally hear each other. But this didn't make any sense, and I realized suddenly I was exhausted. Well, good night, I said weakly. I'll try not to snore, he said. And then, after hours of talking, that one joke suddenly unnerved me. I realized that this wasn't like hanging up the phone or signing off instant messaging. When we stopped talking, he'd still be there, or here, or wherever. A few minutes later, I picked up my pillow and crept as quietly as I could to the living room couch. Here's what the scientists said on the news, finally, a few days later. Every instant, they said, an infinite number of parallel universes are created as an infinite number of decisions are made. 
Usually those universes just split apart and go off on their own separate courses, never to touch again. But sometimes, two universes that had split in the past drift back toward each other. Sometimes they even get close enough to merge back together again. They said it probably happens all the time. But typically, things in the two universes are so similar that we don't even notice. Maybe, they said, the few anomalies and differences are what have always been reported as ghosts or UFOs. This time, however, the two universes split some time ago. No one really knew exactly, but maybe five years, maybe fifty years. Because of that, things were different. As the two universes bumped into each other, they wouldn't just mostly overlap like usual. We would notice all the little and big differences, probably millions of them. And when they merged, if they merged, well, who knew what would happen? After hearing the scientists explain it all, I decided to talk to Roger again. I'd been tiptoeing around my apartment, trying to ignore the sounds that Roger made, which were becoming clearer and clearer all the time. The sneaking and daily panic attacks had started to seem almost normal, but then I realized I was being an idiot. Hey, I said again, that night when I was sure Roger was in bed, there's still somebody here. That same silence followed. And then another single word answer. Good, he said. We talked almost every night from then on. I got to like it. I got to like Roger's voice, calm and musical, with something that sounded like a hint of an accent. He said he'd been born in Ireland, but had moved to the States when he was five years old. Maybe I was just wishing he had an accent. Eventually, I stopped slipping off to the living room to sleep. Once I got to know Roger better, I realized he was funny and kind. And to me, he was still just a disembodied voice. There wasn't really anything to be afraid of. Sometimes it was even nice in the still dark hours of the morning when I woke suddenly from a dream to hear him breathing calmly in the room not far away. The more people talked between the worlds, the more it seemed like things were mostly the same in both universes, not exactly, but pretty close. According to the news, scientists were working on figuring out when our two worlds had diverged and whether they would likely bounce off each other or end up merging. By this time, Roger and I were talking long into the nights, not just comparing the differences and similarities of our universes anymore, but just about ourselves, what we did that day, what we hoped to do tomorrow. It seemed natural to us, but we were the exception. Lots of people were still pretending that nothing was happening, still keeping as quiet as possible so the new neighbors wouldn't hear. Some people had discovered other versions of themselves coming through from the other universe, I was glad that wasn't the case for me, and I never asked Roger to find out if there was another version of me living in his universe. Whether better or worse, I didn't want to know what might have been any different about my life. I didn't even want to think about it. But sometimes, 
I was tempted to see if there was a version of Roger in my universe. I liked him. I wanted to meet him, to see him. I even put his name into Google once and pulled up a Facebook profile. But I knew right away that this other version was different. Even if I did meet him in the flesh, he wasn't this Roger, my Roger. So I closed the browser and just kept what I had instead the calm, musical voice in the night as I lay in my bed under the moonlight. Eventually, the universes got close enough that things started to bleed through, too. I'd trip over something as I came back home to my dark apartment. Did you leave your boots by the door again? I'd ask. Or he'd call to me invisibly from the kitchen. I think I got your milk in my refrigerator, he'd say. Gross! It's expired. As the universes drew closer, it started happening all the time. Sometimes there'd be two similar objects sitting next to each other, two lamps, mine and his, crowding an end table. Other times it was like new space had been created for the new objects. My dresser grew extra drawers that were full of men's clothes. I laughed when I realized he folded his socks. Then one day I arrived home to find a vase of flowers on my kitchen counter. I didn't tell him that it had come through, just kept it secret, like a stupid grinning schoolgirl, while I baked him a tray of cookies. Just as I was pulling them out of the oven, Roger called over and said, I can smell those. They're for you, I said, suddenly shy, for being sweet. Somehow, I was still unprepared for the morning when I woke to find my bedroom twice as large as usual. On one side of my bed, where there should have been only a wall, there stretched another room that was a mirror image of mine, or a mirror image of what mine could have been had it been furnished and decorated by somebody else. There was a dresser, a desk, a computer, a bookcase. There was a bed. In the bed, Was a man. I shouldn't have been shocked. I should have been used to weirdness by then, but everything else had felt like a kid's game, like talking through a tin can and string telephone, or leaving messages and gifts for each other in a hollow tree. But now everything was suddenly very real. I sank back down into my own bed, my heart fluttering and my throat tightening. I didn't dare get up or make any noise. It was Roger, of course. It had to be. It was the man I had been talking to every day, now unexpectedly deposited in my bedroom. Or had I been deposited in his? I closed my eyes and turned away. Sometime later, I heard stirring from his side of the room. I screwed my eyes tighter shut. Then I heard his voice. Wow, he said. It was clear and natural, like a voice sounds when it really is right next to you, not screened through the borders of two different universes. Hey, Jennifer, said the voice again, said Roger again. He sounded like he was in total wonderment. He didn't sound frightened, only amazed and excited. Hey, Jennifer, he said again, is that you? Are you there? 
At last, I took a deep breath, vainly trying to quiet my heart. Yes, I said weakly, still clutching my blanket, still facing away from him with my eyes screwed shut. Yes, I'm here. Ages seemed to pass while I waited for Roger to speak again. I could hear him on the edge of his bed, the box springs squeaking under him. I wondered how many others around the world were having the same experience that we were right now. I wondered how they were taking it. Jennifer, Roger said at last, let me see you. And slowly, somehow, I felt myself unfurling, turning toward him, responding instinctively to his voice like a plant responds to the sun or moisture or gravity. I sat up on my own bed, facing him, and then at last I opened my eyes. For a long time, we just sat there, separated by a short gulf, and looked at each other. But after a while, looking didn't seem like enough. Roger crossed over from his world to mine the first time that morning. Later, I crossed over to see what his side looked and felt like. We learned later that most people didn't do that, at least not right away, not until they knew it was safe. The geometry of the collision was something I never really understood. Almost every space suddenly had a double it was still possible to travel in all the usual directions, north, south, east, west, up, down, but it was as if a new direction and a new dimension had been added. At every moment, each of us could step from any physical location in one world to the corresponding physical location in the other. You could go out, and others could come in. A lot of people were worried about what this would mean, whether it meant that one world would obliterate the other or people might get trapped on the wrong side if the world suddenly separated, or if this meant we'd end up with one world with two versions of almost everything all squished together. But Roger and I didn't really care about any of those questions. We were too busy finding out that we were in love. A couple months later, I took Roger to visit my parents. We drove three hours to Pennsylvania, carrying a bottle of wine with us. My parents insisted on ignoring the fact that Roger had come from the next world over. My mother simply hovered nervously, fetching cheese trays and lemonade, while my father made bland small talk about whatever he thought would be a safe topic. All around my parents' house, they had pinned up long rows of bedsheets, Anywhere that the other world might peek through, they had hung sheets and blankets as privacy curtains. Whether they were hung from this side or that side, I couldn't tell. For some reason, it made me furious. I was alone in the kitchen with my mother when I demanded, Don't you even know who's over there? I could hear my father talking calmly about the blizzard of 61 in the next room which he must have figured was long enough ago to be safe. Jennifer, said my mother, white and shaking. She was suddenly angrier than I was. We don't talk about that here. 
Later, as I was putting on my shoes to leave, I heard a laugh come from the other side of one of the sheets. Lifting a corner, I peeked under. In a room that looked remarkably like my parents' living room, I saw my father, or a version of my father, sitting on the sofa with his arm around a woman. But the woman, something was wrong with her. No matter how I scanned her features, I couldn't make that woman fit into the form of my mother. Both of the people on the other side glared at me. Even as I let the sheet fall with a mumbled apology, my blood turned icy in my veins. I suddenly understood my mother's fury. I was furious, too, as irrational as that was. Obviously, something had happened. In that other world, something was different. With my parents, they had divorced, or my mother had died, or they had never met. And there, on the other side of all those sheets and blankets, was that other life, probably neither happier nor sadder than this one, just different, and it was getting closer. Every hour, every day, as the collision progressed, those other people were pushing into my parents' rooms and their lives. Soon there might be no way to keep them out. That night, at the motel, there was nobody renting the room on the other side. I told Roger I wanted to be alone, and I went to sleep on the bed in the other universe. It was cold and empty, but at least it didn't crowd me. As space grew tighter, objects from each world started to meld together. It started with the biggest ones first. Where there had been twice as many skyscrapers on the skyline, there were once again the usual number. The duplicates had vanished, pushed together into single buildings occupying more or less the same space they had originally. The same happened for houses and stores and restaurants. Where there were differences, the result was a combination of the two. A little from this world and a little from that. It was unnerving, and often the slightness of the changes made them more so. Many times I stood looking at a building or holding an object in my hand, trying to figure out if it really had changed or if I had just imagined it. Even the furniture in our fast shrinking apartment had become a hodgepodge. The dresser was mine, but it had the knobs from Roger's. The desk was his. But my initials were carved in the bottom of one of the drawers. The books on our bookcases became weird entanglements of two stories told at once. I tried to read a few, but nothing made sense, and I was left with unpleasant headaches. Water finds its level, said the scientists. I don't know exactly what that meant. I don't know if anybody did. But it became a soothing motto nonetheless. Whenever we saw something changed, something old that had been carelessly mashed together with something new and different, we would nod and say, Water finds its level. I guess it was supposed to make it seem natural. It was meant to suggest that this was somehow a return to order or the result of some natural process. A flood might be violent while it happened, but once the water found its level, the torrent was replaced. With a peaceful lake. It was also meant, I suspect, to keep us from thinking too much about what would happen to the people. 
There was no other version of me in Roger's universe. Eventually, I asked him, and he told me that he had looked, but never found one. It seemed clear enough. Whatever had changed about my parents had also erased me. I didn't ask for details, didn't want to know. Whether I had died somehow or had just never existed, I didn't want to know. Roger never asked about himself. Maybe he did his own research on his visits here before all the phone books and internet databases got entangled. Maybe he just knew. Either way, I didn't tell him about the other version of him that I had found. I even knew where he worked, in a restaurant across town. I had tried to forget about his whole existence, and mostly I succeeded. Another Roger, only twenty miles away? It made me sick somehow. I was sorry that I had ever looked. But eventually, I went. Once everything started to meld together, I had to. Once there, I couldn't bring myself to get out of my car and just sat in the parking lot, staring at the restaurant. Hours passed. I lost track of how many times I swore to myself that I would leave. Then, at last, the other Roger came out in a cook's smock, chatting and sharing cigarettes with a waitress. I went numb as I watched him. He was the same, but not. I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want to get to know him. I didn't want to find out if I liked kissing him. He had long hair. He smoked. He worked as a cook. It sounds superficial, but that wasn't the Roger I knew. I might not have cared about any of those things if I had met this Roger first, but that wasn't how things had worked out. Somewhere, back in his life, he had made different choices from the Roger I knew. He had different priorities. But more importantly, my Roger was the one who had talked to me all those nights. This person, no matter how good the copy, hadn't done any of that. That shared history had shaped some small part of my Roger. We had laughed together, cried together, discovered things together. None of that could be replaced, not even by this identical twin. There were countless programs on TV about people who had melded, or who were about to meld, or who wanted to meld. They all talked about feeling a strong pull, a desire, a need. And after their melding, they said it was the best thing that had ever happened to them. How some imaginary hole in their being seemed to be filled. I just kept thinking, that's what people used to say about falling in love. But they made it sound like melding was even better than that. Whenever the subject came up, Roger and I would just argue. So we stopped talking about it. But it would come up anyway, in secret and infuriating ways. Would you still love me? Roger would say. Shut up, I would say. Eventually, I had to ask him. I blew up and asked him if he had ever wanted to be a cook, if he had ever had long hair, if he had ever tried a cigarette, if he had a thing for scuzzy waitresses with dyed hair and too much eye makeup. I didn't tell him why I was asking, but he knew. Yeah, 
He said, I used to want to be a chef. I thought about going to culinary school. After that, I had to wonder which Roger had made the good decisions and which one had made the bad decisions. Which of the Rogers, if they compared lives, would be the happier one? There were videos of people melding all over the internet if you knew where to look for them, if you wanted to look for them. I didn't like them. The insides and outsides, the flesh and skin merging and oozing together, things wriggling and writhing, skin splitting and sealing. They made me lightheaded. I hated them. The time when Roger was away for three days without calling, they were all that I watched. I recognized Roger immediately when he came back. I recognized both of them. He stood there in the hallway outside the apartment, a kind of hangdog expression on his face as he looked out from under his new, long, stringy hair through his old, watery blue eyes. He didn't say he was sorry. He didn't say anything. He knew how I felt, but I guess he wondered the same things I did about which Roger had made the right choices. This was just another thing that never should have surprised me. <laughs> Water finds its level. As he stood there, his whole body was a question. Through my pain and fury and sorrow, I could see what he was asking. Could I find enough of the Roger I had loved to let him stay with me? Could I find enough of him in there to try again? New and different were frightening, he seemed to say, but they can be exciting, too. Would I try this next experience with him? Could we discover this together, too? With tears trembling in my lashes and my heart slowly tearing apart, I let him in. Later, when people asked what happened to Roger and me, I always told them the truth. He melded in the collision, I'd say. But I didn't. And then they'd give me that knowing, sympathetic look. They had all been there from one side or another, with spouses or parents or children or friends. We don't say that water finds its level anymore. I haven't heard anybody say that in years. Now we just shrug and say, everybody changes. Everybody changes, and all that we can do is accept it and move on. Everybody finds their other self, and they have that better-than-love melding experience, and suddenly they see everything twice as clearly, and they know twice as many answers. And priorities change overnight. And suddenly... You're on the other end of that double clear stare, and you realize it's quiet, patient pity in those pale blue eyes. You realize they're thinking that you can't ever understand life like they do. You realize that they're sorry there's just no vocabulary to tell you what it means to have walked in two different pairs of shoes.
Yeah. Everybody changes. Except those of us who don't. The End There you go. Don't forget, copyright is M. Bernardo's. And a big thank you to Amy as well. Ames, thank you so much. That is today's show, 304, Put to Bed. What can I say? Come back next week, that would be great. I've got some like a neat, some neat ideas coming for future shows as well, if I can pull that off. Don't forget, though, if you want to kind of keep the show going, donate. That's the way. Monthly donations, please, 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 please. That would be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.